you, David. Good morning to you all. Where's my helper? Thank you. Off you go now. <laughs> Cassie, you, you'll lose your job unless you... I'll find a replacement. Well. Oh, it's lovely to say. I wasn't sure whether we were a lot or a few, but we're a lot, and isn't that wonderful? It's glorious, isn't it, to be part of a church? Has anybody been wondering over the months... What's going to happen, you know? Will our churches dwindle? What will go on? And then when you come back and everybody's here, it's a joy, isn't it? And it speaks about the resilience, not of us, but of God in us, you know? It's a beautiful thing. Here's a, a verse of scripture. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. When the king dies, everything is thrown into chaos. So I thought that I could paraphrase that, that passage this way. In the year of the Omicron pandemic, when five million people had already perished, when inflation was creeping back into the economy, when property prices went through the roof, when world power was shifting and the distant smell of war was in the air, when climate change was melting, the ice caps and catastrophe was certain. I looked away from it all and I saw God Almighty sitting in glory, holding our lives securely in his omnipotent hands, his angelic hosts surrounding him with unimaginable power. Would that be true? It would, wouldn't it? But it's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. I want, I want you to listen to Karen's reading um, as she comes up, and, but be, bear that in mind, bear King Isaiah and bear what I said in mind, but this morning it's going to be almost the opposite of that. You'll see, when Karen reads, you're going to think in the next few minutes that you are standing in Woolies looking at hot cross buns on Boxing Day. Did anybody do it? You seen them? <laughs> it's extraordinary really, isn't it? Because we're having an Easter reading. So, when, when it comes around at Easter, it can be, it can be um, hard sometimes to, to dig into the passages as deeply because we're already talking about Easter. So, an Easter message with a different perspective today. Okay. John 13, 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise what I am doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you. So, at the beginning of the reading, verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. It's such an ordinary setting, isn't it? Dinner. They're serving dinner. And it's a remarkable group that have assembled, but the same group is assembled often enough. It's, a, it's an ordinary moment. And bear that in mind, because in our lives, most of what God does is ordinary, because all of our lives are ordinary. The, the mountaintops are just very, very few, and so much of our life, almost all of our life, is common. And sometimes it's even mundane and repetitive because it's just the same. You know, we do the same thing, we get up at the same time, and go to bed at the same time. In this ordinary moment, uh, we read that the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. This morning we're not going to talk about Judas particularly, but don't forget him. Bear in mind that he is there at every point through this story as the stark alternative to following Christ. This morning it's Peter's story particularly that I'd like to um, look at with you. So reading verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus knows at this very moment that he is omnipotent. He knows that his home is in heaven and that God has given him all authority. So right, right at this moment, he could do literally everything, anything, I meant to say. What would you do if you had just a million billionth of that authority and, and you could do one thing? What would you do? Would you get rid of the pandemic, for example? You know, would you tidy up your backyard? What would you do? Have a little think. 
because lots of, lots of movies and lots of literature is about that in one way and another, isn't it? If it's not a genie coming out of a bottle, it's a superhero or something who fixes a few things. But if you could just fix one, what would it be? Now picture Christ who is aware entirely of who he is and can do literally anything at that moment. It's sort of a, an extended New Year's resolution. You know how we come to New Year's and we've got this fairly false idea that we're going to be able to do whatever we want to do. And so we make a resolution and that, you know, how long do they last? Maybe February, March? But at this point, Christ can do things that will last forever. The next word in the scripture at the beginning of verse 4 is the title that I, I chose to give this message because it's just the word so. So. He has omnipotent power, all authority, complete awareness of who he is and where he's going. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He methodically divests his status completely. We don't have servants in our world, um, not ones that we can see anyway, do we? We've got, I, I often wonder if we don't have a, a very large number of servants who are in a different country who sew our clothes and make our little products and do all sorts of stuff. But in our midst today, there are no servants. My, fam my family had a servant. My dad can remember, I can't, but my dad can remember a man whose name was Hope and um, when he was very, very little. And he um, um, has often told me that Hope was so important that he sat at the table with the family because what his job was, was to drive the car. And the car had come from England on a ship with a driver. That's how, that's how it was delivered, with a driver. And so he was a, Hope was a, a significant and important man. In Bible times, servants didn't have that type of embrace. They didn't sit at the family table. They were sometimes slaves, frequently slaves. And they were, they were marked by their dress. So in the old world, if I was looking out today, um, I wouldn't see a red dress over there and I wouldn't see another red dress. Is anybody wearing purple? It's all a bit black and white from here. Hands up who's wearing purple. Nobody's wearing purple? Oh yes. So in purple you, you are the most, you have the most authority and prestige in the room. You didn't know that. Because purple, purple is the colour in the ancient world that's most difficult to make and it has to be made out of mollusks and stuff off the seashore. Dyeing something red, you had to get... Here's a nice red T-shirt down here. That would have been made with cochineal bugs, beetles, ground up into a paste. <laughs> and then put your T-shirt in the paste and make it red. And there's some yellow. I don't know. Oh, I can't remember what yellow comes from. But in the old world, you would have all been wearing uh, drab. Greens, dull greens, greys, browns and dirt, I suppose, you know, realistically. But the person at the head of the table, maybe even me sitting out here, would have been wearing something significant. If I was the king, I would be dressed in red and gold and purple and all the bright things I could get. So dress in the ancient world was a huge delineator 
And when Jesus takes off his outer garment, we don't know its colour, it doesn't matter, but when he wraps a towel around himself, he is very visibly divesting himself of the authority that the disciples attribute to him. And that's an extraordinary thing. Jesus is, is confronting the disciples with the question that he had asked in, you know, sometime back we can read it in Matthew 16 when he says, who do you say that I am? Do you see how he's doing that? He's confronting them with this, this same question. When he asked that question back in Matthew, it was Simon Peter who got it right. Now I read this because it's Simon's journey that we want to follow this morning. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is moving around the circle from disciple to disciple. He's got a basin and he's washing each of their feet. I went on my brother's yacht a few weeks ago. My brother recently bought, uh, I think it's about 30 feet long. So it's the sort of, it's a yacht that's been in the Sydney Hobart several times, I believe. So you can imagine the size. And down in the, down in the depths of it, hanging on the wall, there's a gimbal. I don't know whether you know what a gimbal is. It holds a kerosene lamp. And you can have a gimbal on a compass and you can have a gimbal on, on almost anything. And the way it works is, this is a good way to demonstrate it. So it swings this way, but then there's another one of these, <laughs> like this, I think, that lets it swing that way. So it can swing this way and that way. Like, so the effect is this. Yeah, you got it? So having a kerosene lamp on a wooden ship, it's, you know, there's obvious hazards to that, but that's how you light an old ship. And I looked at the gimbal and I was just spellbound by it because it's like, it's a, it's a corrector. It makes everything okay all the time. I think it's a good image of what is not happening for the disciples right now because I reckon their world is, is just tilting rapidly as Jesus comes to them. As he begins to wash their feet, the foundation of, of where they thought they were heading and what they thought the kingdom was all about is being radically adjusted. And it feels to me as though the world is just tipping over. They've been with Christ and they've witnessed countless miracles. They've come to think of him as the king who will return in this world to take power and deliver them from the oppression of the Romans and, and right every wrong because that's what he's been doing on a personal level. He comes to Simon. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Is it because Peter has some sense that he ought to be exempt from this, that he's different to the rest? I wonder. 
Jesus replied to Peter and says, You do not yet realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Isn't that a, a beautiful phrase? You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. That's a little verse that you can, or I do, lift out of its context and meditate on because it can help you sort out life. How often we don't really know what's going on, but later we understand it. How often things feel terrible and you're praying for this, but God isn't doing this, he's doing what's happening and later on you are blessed by it and you understand it. It's a good thing. I tried to think of a good example of this because it's such an important part of this, this narrative. And it's hard to find a story that isn't deeply personal because most of these moments where we don't understand what God's doing, they sort of have a very intimate connection to our heart. But I did remember something years ago, not that many years ago, 2010, which is years ago, isn't it? That's 11 years. Do, do you have this feeling that Every time you hear something that's in the 20s, you think like, oh, that wasn't long ago. T 2001, you think, oh, that wasn't long ago, but it was, wasn't it? <laughs> it's very strange. I, was, uh, I went to the Gibson Desert and I um, had planned a trip in, in quite a lot of detail and I was travelling for the first time. I'd been there frequently, but I, I was travelling with a wheelchair. And... When the plane landed, I got out and various utes and people were taking mail from the plane and some frozen goods and I think there was another passenger, I don't remember, but all of that happened. And then the plane took off, <laughs> clouds of dust. It's not good, you want to get away from the airstrip when the plane's taking off, but I was there, all the dust, and absolutely nothing happened. And so I was sitting there, it, in, in the heat of, of, of Central Australia on an airstrip and there was nobody. And for at least 40 minutes there was nobody, nothing happened. There's no phones, so I didn't have a phone. I've got a wheelchair, so there's not much I can do really except just sit there and wonder what has happened to all the planning, all the preparation, all the phone calls. And I begin to wonder, what, what's happening? It felt like the whole vision was crumbling. God, what are you doing? But it got a little bit worse because when my, my good friend finally turned up, an Aboriginal man that I was quite close to, he said something like, oh, that plane, you know, like, <laughs> even though we'd been through it, he'd forgotten all about it or been caught up with something else. But the trouble was then, I needed his help to put my wheelchair in the back of his ute. And then on top of that, we then had to go to the shop and do some shopping and I needed him to help me by pushing the wheelchair. And this was, and I don't like re relaying this because it's such an ugly fact, but for him, an Aboriginal man, to push my wheelchair around was sort of untenable. It's the it's the horrible dynamic that still exists in so much of Australia and so much of the world where white people and black people exist in a certain dynamic and a black man pushing a white man in a wheelchair contravened that. And my friend was a, a, a senior man, he wasn't a novice, he was my own age and, and we'd known each other for 
mm, 35 years maybe. But he found it excruciatingly difficult to help me because that's just not the way the dynamic works. And it was awful because everything that I thought was going to happen wasn't happening and it just felt like this planned expedition. We planned to do things together. We were going to go to a, a convention together at another community for Easter and all of it. But as the days passed, we eventually were able to talk together about this thing that had happened between us, which I hope you can understand the dynamic of it. But the conversations that we had about that were some of the most deep and wonderful and allowed us to find a brotherhood together that we hadn't, at, even after all those years, until that, that sort of crisis confronted us. And so, uh, difficult, anguishing, not what I thought God's plan was, but so fruitful, so good. You do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Let's get back now to Peter's story. He says in verse 8, no to Jesus. No, you shall never wash my feet. I picture Peter in distress, but maybe not knowing where the distress is coming from. Jesus, as I've said, is turning the world upside down, but I don't think Peter understands the upside-downness of it at all. Peter doesn't yet see that the first will be last, or that the king is actually a servant. Do you remember the story when the mother of James and John came to Christ and the mother says to them, when you come into your kingdom, can my... Who wants... To, can you believe it? Jesus, my mum's got something to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so weird. I hadn't really thought about it quite like that. But it is the weirdest story, isn't it? Jesus, could you have a word with my mum? <laughs> and then there's the ten. And it says that the ten, so that includes Peter, the ten are indignant. Now what are they indignant about? Are they indignant because they can see the foolishness of it all? Are they indignant because they don't want to have to bring their mums? <laughs> to, to the business meeting? Or are they indignant because they want those spots themselves? And I think the last is the answer. They're indignant because deep down in all of them there's a jealousy. No, they can't be to the left and the right of Jesus. Why them? Why not us? Why not me? Jesus calls them together. This is from Matthew 20. And he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you instead. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Familiar to us, because we've heard it so often, but the disciples don't get the point. And I wonder if at the edge of Peter's consciousness, while he's trying to, to get out of the foot washing thing, is a tiny voice somewhere in the back telling him, Peter, your turn will come. This is you. 
And Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. We might hear a rumour there of sort of atonement, but I don't think that's what Jesus is actually talking about. I think he's, the exchange is about the first becoming the servant. Peter then says something that's a little hard to understand. He says, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now Jesus is pushing Peter, confronting the part of Peter that is greatly disturbed by the prospect of, of, of humiliation. Think about that word for a minute, humiliation. It's one thing to be humble, one thing to have humility, but it's a completely other thing to be humiliated. So, I can, if I just adjust my face properly, have humility. See, watch this. It's easy to look humble, isn't it? You can do it. We've all done it. Try to look innocent. <laughs> when we know we're not. It's so easy to take on humility as a sort of a, a garment, a thing that you put over yourself to, to hide what's really going on inside. It's an entirely different thing to actually do humble stuff. And I think that humiliation is inevitably the experience of those who seriously embrace the lowest task. We might want to say, no, no, it's not about humiliation, but listen, I think it is at some point. I think if we actually take the lowest task, it will be humiliating, no matter how much we might want to wriggle out from under that. And when Peter proposes a head wash and a hand wash, I think he's wriggling out, he's trying to get out of the whole thing, and I wonder if he isn't turning it into some sort of religious ritual, something other than what it actually is. And haven't we all done that? Now, show of hands please, how many of us have been part of a foot washing thingy jiggery ceremony at church? How many? Maybe a third of us. How many times? Hands up who's done it more than once. Oh, it's getting few now. But it happens. Hands up the people who've washed a dirty person's feet that you didn't know and it wasn't in church. One. Two. That's something, isn't it? So even we have turned this thing into a religious ritual instead of being the thing that Jesus was doing, which was not religious, it was not ritual at all. I've done both, and I must admit that when I've done it in church, I haven't really enjoyed it all that much. What do you reckon? Are you, are you honest enough to say that with me, that it's like, it's not all that much fun, really? And, um, and it hasn't necessarily done me all that much good either. And what I want to compare it to is the actual washing of people's feet. Now, when I was about 20, I think, I worked with the Sydney City, Sydney City Mission in, in inner Sydney and you know they have the, the buses that drive around, they had a, a big red heart on them as I remember but this is long ago, this is when I was, well I'm 60 so it's 40 years ago and uh, the bus drove around and picked up men, it was a men's shelter that I worked in so it was always men 
and brought them back. And my job was in the, the, uh, the overnight place. I can't just, the word for that's just slipped my mind, but a shelter of some sort. And when people came in, I was to um, give them new clothes, take their old clothes and, and put them in, um, mark them and put them in a box so that they could have them back. And I needed to help them have a shower often. And so washing somebody who's living on the street, it's really yuck, you know? It's really yuck, and it's not at all like washing people's feet in church. And that difference stands out to me because I wonder, I wonder if we aren't all, well, let me just speak for myself, if I am not also, like Peter, trying to wriggle out from under Jesus' example of foot washing. Now, I'd probably never get the chance to wash another person's dirty feet. And most of us, that won't happen to. And to the three of us that did, it's sort of extraordinary, but it's not the point, because this isn't about actually washing people's feet, is it? It's about taking the lowest job in the room. It's about volunteering for the dirty work. It's, but it's not only that either. It's about taking the lowest path. There was a, a, a theologian, Francis Schaeffer. You might remember him many years ago. He started the um, discipleship communities called Labrie, which you don't hear much of anymore because he, he died quite some years ago. But he was, he was quite influential. And he wrote, uh, he, he had a, a video series called How Shall We Then Live? and a book. And it was very, it was very popular. Does anybody know of it? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah, and so I can remember back when I was younger than 20 going to the Presbyterian church where they were showing these videos because this, this is long before. It's not a video, is it? It's a film. Do you remember films? And you can't plug it in. You've got to thread the film through. You remember all that? And then you start it up and then it burns a hole in it. And you <laughs> Those big machines, you could hire them. Oh, how complicated life was. And we went and saw this and I understood none of it because I was only 19 and what do you know when you're 19? But one thing stayed with me. He said that when a Christian faces a choice, a decision, he should take the lower path. I found his exact words. Schaefer says, we should consciously take the lowest place unless the Lord himself extrudes us into a greater one. Extrude, so that's like forcing aluminium through a machine until it comes out like a piece of gutter. You know, that's extrusion. It's a good word. Unless God extrudes us into something higher, we should stay in the lower place. And that, that just stayed with me because it's so opposite of our culture. It's so opposite of our thinking all the time. And of course, Jesus is the master of opposite to our thinking, isn't he? Keep reading the Gospels and just see how frequently he says what you don't think ought to be said. He turns it over all the time, upside down. Foot washing is a rare event, but the opportunity to take the lower path will happen to you this morning before you get in your car, I reckon. Here, today. When we finish, will you be a listener or a talker? Which story will be most important? Your story or their story? Did you come here to, to get things off your chest? Did you come here to tell everybody else how tough your life is? Or did you come here with a willingness to listen and to help people heal in their own conversation? 
when something needs doing this morning, will you be a worker or a watcher? Some little thing that needs to be done. Will you do it or will you watch other people do it? There's so many opportunities. Every now and again we'll have a bigger opportunity. There might be, you know, a few dozen in your life where, where you can do something really quite significant. Something bad happens, a, a moment arrives and you step into it and you can be of great use. And maybe two or three or four times in your entire life an opportunity will come along where you are able to lay down your life which Jesus calls us to do. And when the moment comes, that, that world-changing moment where you can lay down your life for another, what will you do? Because it'll depend on whether you've learned the path of a servant. If you have learned it, you'll step in and you'll, you'll follow Christ and you'll lay down your life. But if you haven't learned the path of the servant, well, who knows? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. When Christ had finished washing their feet, verse 12, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asks them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Are those words for Peter and all of us? Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Peter cannot wriggle out. Just the fact that he was sort of separated by something that Jesus said, you are the rock and on you are, doesn't give him any room to be greater than the teacher. And something within us will always try and get out of this and think that it doesn't apply to us. But it does. Now that you know these things, Jesus says, you will be blessed if you do them. And a chapter later, he says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. So, back to the word that we, I chose early in the, the message. We've seen Christ, almighty. Think again of Isaiah's vision. We've seen Christ, the almighty the beginning and the end of all history and of all things. We've seen this glorious, powerful being in the most ordinary setting of a meal. And then we saw the God of all nations volunteer for the worst job in the room. And it would have been a yucky job, wouldn't it? I know you've heard this at Easter messages, but people in that culture were wearing sandals and bare feet and, and not having the benefits of a chiropodist or a podiatrist or, or a band-aid or whatever. Have you ever looked at somebody's toenail and then just like wished you hadn't? <laughs> <laughs> and you're trying to talk to them but there's only one image in your mind and you think, <laughs> can stay with you a long time. Oh. God of all nations volunteers himself for the worst job in the room. I think as Christians we, we talk so much about what we believe and not 
enough about how we live. How do we actually follow Christ? Well, this morning, the beginning of 2022, I think that Jesus says very clearly to us, do this. Do this. Less talk, more task. Are you wondering what comes next in your life? Are you wondering what this year holds? Is there a sense of uncertainty within you? I think there is with all of us about which way our world will head next. I don't think any of us have lived in a time of such uncertainty. Jesus gives us an imperative. Do this. Do this. This is the way to live. This is the path of a Christian. It's unambiguous. It's just entirely clear. Do this. Amen. Matt's going to come back and lead us in, a, in a, another worship song before we leave this morning.